So um, before we get into the scripture tonight, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about joy. Uh, I was talking to a friend the other day, and, and everybody has struggles. Everybody's going through something. Life is tough. Life isn't easy. Um, be it our jobs, be it our family, be it our neighbors, co-workers, financial stuff. Um, there's always something that we're dealing with. And so um, before tonight's message, I just wanted to read a little bit about joy and kind of give you a definition of joy and what true joy really is. Um, so first, it sounds like a good idea that we should probably begin with the definition of joy. So definitions are simply descriptions of the way people use words. So a definition for joy for my wonderful youth group could be different than uh, the guys over here on this side of the room. Joy for a 15-year-old might be different than joy from a 50-ish-year-old over there. Um, uh, so the definitions depends on the people, right? And so, um, and it's used by the way the people use them. When I say I want to define joy for you, I'm asking whose joy are we talking about or what use of the word are we talking about? And so the joy that I'm talking about, I mean the joy as the Apostle Paul used in his letters, and particularly in the book of Philippians. And I'm not just asking about the meaning of joy in general. Um, I'm talking about Christian joy, as Paul the Apostle described it. So let me give you a definition, and then we'll take it apart a piece at a time. So Christian joy, to me, is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit, as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the world and in the word. Um, so as we break it down, Christian joy is a good feeling. Christian joy, by that I mean it is not an idea. It's not a conviction. It is not a, a persuasion or a decision. I can't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to be joyful all day today. Right? We can say that, but does it automatically work? No. Um, it is a feeling. Um, I use the word, uh, or it's a feeling or it's an emotion. One of the marks of the difference between an idea and an emotion or feeling is that you don't have immediate control over your feelings or your emotions. You can't just snap your fingers and decide to feel something, right? So, for an example, uh, say we, you go camping and you wake up and you're in a tent and you see this huge shadow of a bear outside your tent, okay? Um, it's a big grizzly bear. He's hungry. And you just can't say, oh, well, now I think, let me think about this. Um, there's a big bear outside my tent. It's dangerous. I should feel fear here, right? Do we do that? No. We wake up, we see it, and we're immediately fearful, right? Or scared. Um, some of you immediately pull your pistol, right? So, um, that's an immediate action. Um, we just don't decide to be afraid. Emotions don't work like that. Thinking works like that, but feelings don't. It happens to you, which means the Bible is filled with commands that we do things that are immediately outside our control to do. Commands to rejoice, commands to fear, to be grateful, or to be tenderhearted. Um, one of the reasons that I'm the Christian that I am with the theology that I have is that I know the Bible requires of me things that I cannot 
myself immediately produced by my own power. You know, it's hard to love certain people, but God calls us to do that, right? So what do we do? We pray about it, right? We ask God to change our heart. Um, a lot of thing, God, a lot of things that God calls us to do in the Bible that you know are outside ourselves, but through Christ we're able to do those things. Um, because I am fallen, I am broken, I am sinful, and yet I know I should be feeling the emotion the Bible expects me to feel. I know myself to be guilty. Um, Augustine wrote, "Father, command what you will, and grant what you command." He knew God commanded certain emotions of him that he could not make happen on his own. So he prayed, Oh God, if you are going to command me these things, grant that you would give me them when you command them. So God commands us to love our neighbors, right? Love everyone. Do we do that? Uh uh-uh. uh. Right? So we got to ask for it. We got to ask God to, to change our heart, turn our heart. Make that adjustment in our lives, and it can happen. So um, the first part of the definition is that joy is a good feeling, right? It's a good feeling. The second part of the definition is that it, uh, the good feeling is in the soul, right? Um, by that, I'm drawing attention to the fact that it is not in the body, okay? The soul, the immaterial part of your person expresses joy. The body may feel the effects of it, Right? We're happy, we have a smile, right? We feel joy, we might even have goosebumps or whatever. But this, um, we have butterflies in our stomachs sometimes. Uh, we may uh, put a skip to our step. If you've ever seen Jared happy, he walks around a little different, right? Um, that is joy. <laughs> so, um, and we even have tears of joy. But none of these effects is my body, though it... It is itself joy. There are many um, distinctions of joy. So if we look at the body, okay, what is the body? The body is chemicals, muscles, nerves, bones, and it's made of a bunch of electrons, atoms, and, and nucleus, and all these weird little things are going on. And when these molecules move, this is not a moral event, right? The body doesn't have right and wrong, and movement of my arm back and forth has no moral significance, Right? This isn't right. This isn't wrong. Unless, right, until I tell my will or my emotion to punch somebody. Right? That's bad. Okay? Then it becomes bad. Or if I tell them to hug somebody, right, then it's good. Um, My soul imparts virtue, right or wrong, to the physical parts of my life. That's where we get the right and wrong is in our soul. Same place where we get our joy. And the Bible clearly says it is right to feel joy in God or it is wrong to be anxious about a situation. There is a righteousness and a wrongness to these emotions. And these emotions precede the bodily movements that follow. The feelings are movements of the soul. So joy is good. It's in the soul and it's produced by the spirit. So the third part of the definition of joy is these movements of the soul are produced by the Holy Spirit, which is clear because I cannot make these things happen, right? I can't make joy just happen. Um, They are called the fruits of the Spirit, okay? And the fruits of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
And uh, you can find that list in Galatians 5.22. Therefore, the joy in my soul overflowing towards God is coming from the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? True joy can't come from stuff. can't come from people. True joy has to come from the Holy Spirit. It has to come from God. Okay? Um, the fourth piece is that the Holy Spirit does this work. It's not magical, right? We just can't read one scripture and be joyful forever, right? We have to have that constant flow with the Holy Spirit. Um, but by causing me to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, the Spirit gives us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus that calls joy up out of our hearts. So if we look at Philippians 3, one, it says, Rejoice in the Lord. How do you rejoice in the Lord if you don't know anything about the Lord? Right? So we have to continue to know the Lord. How do non-believers find their joy? They have no real joy. Right? That's why it's our duty to love them and to share the Word of God with them. How do you rejoice in the Lord if you're not seeing things about the Lord that cause joy to raise up in your heart? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, He doesn't just flip a switch and you receive no mental context whatsoever, right? The Holy Spirit is given, according to John sixteen fourteen, to glorify Jesus Christ. That's why there is a Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit is for, is to glorify Jesus Christ. Which means the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of my heart to see the beauty of Christ. When I see Christ and all this He is doing and all that He is, then my heart is drawn up out in joy towards Him. The Holy Spirit bears this fruit by causing us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And then the last piece of the definition is that we see Him in His Word and in the world. It is obvious that the most authoritative, authoritative and clearest place where we see the beauty of Christ is in the Bible, right? In His Word. And that is why the Holy Spirit inspired the Word. Every word. So that we could read the Word and know Christ. The Spirit gives us eyes to see the beauty of Christ that calls joy up out of our hearts. It is not just the Word that we see Christ. We see Him in His gifts and His people we see him in his gifts of nature. We see him in his gifts and all the good things that our Father in heaven gives us. Right? Look outside. Look at a sunset. You know, it's beautiful. Go look at some of the scenery around here. You know, God created that. Um, so we see Christ not only in his word, but also in his works. And as we prepare for tonight's message, the definition that I'm working with is joy is a good feeling in the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit, and he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in his word and in his works. So, uh, you know, the Lord just put that on my heart to share what joy truly is, because I know a lot of us need more joy in our life. We all have struggles. We're all dealing with stuff. And sometimes we tend to focus more on our struggles than we do on Jesus, right? If we prayed as much as we worried, what would our life look like? Okay? If we... Worshiped as much as we stressed, how would our day go? Right? So I just want to encourage you guys to just seek the Lord throughout your entire day. Right? I'm not telling you to quit your jobs and just stay at home and read the Bible. You know, it says in, oh, I don't want to misquote this, but it says in the Bible that with everything you do, do it for the Lord. Right? Even if you're at work, do it for the Lord. Okay?
So tonight's message, the scripture, we're going to be in 1 Kings 18. And we're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to go through verse 46. Um, and so, when I read a story in the Old Testament, I want to read it on its own terms and let the flow of the story tell me the author's main point. A lot of times when we go to the Old Testament, we just remember the stories from Sunday school or uh, wherever, and we don't really focus on all the details. So I don't want to force my ideas from somewhere else in the Bible onto the story, no matter how true or the ideas may be. And since I believe that the whole Bible is God's word and profitable, profitable for every person, even in today's culture, I want to see both how the New Testament reaches back and connects with the story and how it reaches forward and, and connects with our lives today. Um, it's truly a thrilling thing to me when the main point that I see in a God-inspired Old Testament story is picked up in the New Testament and becomes radically relevant for today's people. Um, it's a thrilling thing, and that's what I hope to hope for you guys to see. Um, yes, the Old Testament is old, and it happened a long time ago, and it was before Jesus, but it's still relevant today. Okay, and that's what we're going to try to show. Hopefully, I can show you guys that. Um, so we're going to go through the point of the story in 1 Kings 18. We're going to show how the New Testament picks it up and then um, what difference it will make for you today. So uh, let's first, um, so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for all these wonderful people that are gathered here tonight, Lord God, with so many other things to do and so many other distractions, Lord. I just thank you and ask that you bless them for being here tonight and wanting to get closer to you, wanting to understand your word, and just wanting to uh, be better Christians, Lord God. I ask that you uh, move myself out of the way and that your message that you want to be taught tonight will be taught. I just pray that your word will be etched on their minds and in their hearts, Lord God. I ask that you meet us here in this place. Move, lead, and guide us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at 1 Kings 18, um, yes, it's in the Old Testament. When is this taking place? What's going on during this time? Um, well, it's about 100 years after King David. So the same David that killed Goliath. He became king, right? He his son built a temple. This was a high point, right, for the Jewish people. They have the temple of God. Things are going good. Solomon's collecting all this wealth. Well, begins to go downhill. The kings after them become worse, 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 worse. They become further and further away from God. Sometimes you throw in a good king here and there. But uh, today, when we talk about chapter 18, we're going to be talking about Ahab. And he didn't like Jesus. He didn't like God. Um, he tore down all the altars. So um, let's talk a little bit about the setting. It's been about 100 years after King David ruled a united Israel. So under King David, Israel was one nation. Um, after that, it was divided into two nations. Um, the, the northern was called Judah, and then the southern was uh, headquartered in Jerusalem. Uh, Ahab is the king. Uh, and he's had forsaken Yahweh, the true God, and he worshipped the idols of Baal. Uh, his wife was the uh, infamous Jezebel. God's leading prophet at this time was Elijah, and there had been a famine and drought in the land for three years. And uh, 
the king blamed Elijah. So three years, think about it. If Beal had a famine and flood for three years, what would it look like around here? It'd be dusty, right? I mean, farms would be gone. Um, probably wouldn't be very many people. The people here probably wouldn't be very happy. Um, it'd be a bad time, bad place. And so um, so we start in uh, chapter 18, verse 16. It reads... After many days, oh, wait, sorry. Let me get it in here. So, Abadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab said, Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? So what he's talking here, um, Ahab, the king of Israel, is blaming Elijah for the famine and for the flood. And he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So Ahab no longer worshipped the true God, right? He picked up the idol worship and worshipped the 450 idols that came with it. And if we look at our lives, we might not have 450 idols that we worship, but sometimes we do have idols that we worship, right? Sometimes we put, an idol is anything we put before God. And that can be our jobs, that could be our family, that could be money, that could be anything, right? And so tonight, I just want to encourage you guys to be aware of these idols, okay? Anything you put before God is an idol, and uh, we're going to talk about the consequences here. Um, if you try to get your life from anything but the true God, you will be lame for all your life. Um, you think that this famine is trouble, Ahab? You and your prophets of Baal are about to see some trouble. Um, and this is what Elijah is telling him. I'm not your problem, right? God Almighty, whose word you scorn, whose worth you trash, with your Baal worship, he's your problem, as you're about to see. I'm just a voice. So Elijah was a prophet, right? Prophets were the, the voice of God. God would speak to the prophets, and the prophets would tell the people. Prophets weren't very popular, okay? If you had a guy always telling you all the bad things you're doing, how much would you like that guy, right? Not very much. Um, so that's why the king is blaming Elijah, Okay, it's, it's not a good job to have, but somebody had to do it. So we move on to 1 Kings 18 and, and verse 19. Elijah continues to Ahab, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mar Mount Carmel. All Israel. He wanted everybody to come up and see this event that he was about to do. It was going to be one major spectacular event. Okay, The whole country. Come to this one mountain. Okay, He goes on. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who ate at Jezebel's table. She has her own special idol and band of prophets, which is why she has hounded all the prophets of Yahweh into the caves. So the prophets of Israel, the true prophets, were forced out and all these Baal prophets came in. Um, let's move on to 20 and 24. 
So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together in Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So here, Elijah is challenging all of Israel. He's telling them, which God are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the idols, or are you going to serve the one true God? And I find it interesting, he uses the word limp. Are you going to limp around? What happens when you limp around? Right, You're lame. You don't walk right. You're weak. Um, and it may be that the point here is to stop being indecisive. Right? Don't go between the two. You can't live your life halfway between God and idols. Um, what a tragic waste many people make on their lives because they just can't become radically devoted to God. And they can't quite give him up. Maybe the point is that's hopeless. You know, there's a lot of people out there who just don't want to give up control. And uh, that's what we need to do, right? We need to give all control to God. But let me uh, suggest something else is going on here. By using the word limp or hobble around in verse 21, how long will you go limping or hobbling like you're lame? That word occurs again in verse 26 uh, when the prophet of Baal are desperately trying to get their God to answer them. O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no voice answered. And they limped, they hobbled around the altar that they had made. I don't think those two use, uses of the word limp or hobble are an accident. Okay? Those are the only times they're used is in this, in this section of Scripture. Um, if you try to get your life, your meaning, your worth, your fire from anything but the true God, you will be lame all your life. Right? Just like the joy. If you're not getting joy from the Lord, you're not getting true joy. If you're not getting your life or giving your life to the Lord, you're going to walk around lame. Okay, You're not going to be able to run properly. You're not going to be able to run your race unless you have the Lord in your life and live for the Lord. You will be lame all your life. The world may call it a dance, but God calls it a limp. Um, let's continue in verse 22. Then Elijah said to his people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Those are not great odds, 1 to 450. But that's the way God likes it. It's going to get worse in just a few minutes. Um, as we move on to 23 through 25. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them, the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you, can, and you call upon the, gods, the name of your gods, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophet of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first. For you are many. It's like Elijah is saying, you are 450, I'm one. And uh, he's going to go last here. So it's kind of like a challenge, right? Okay, all you guys pick your bull. I'll take whatever's left, 
You guys go first. Build an altar. Cut the bull in pieces. And then I'm going to do the same. And we're going to see which God is the true God. Which God is going to set fire to which um, bull. So um, we're on verse 25 through 26. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called it upon the name of Baal from, no, from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped. They hobbled around the altar that they had made. So the challenge was given in the morning. So the 450 idol worshipers were there preparing this, trying to get their idols to create a fire. But are idols going to make a fire? No. Idols are empty, right? Idols aren't going to answer their prayers. So around noontime comes around, and Elijah starts mocking them. Okay, so these guys have been there a couple hours, calling down on their gods and their idols, trying to get this fire to start, and Elijah just starts talking trash, right? Um, and he says, uh, call aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So Elijah is over there just talking trash to all the other prophets, right? The prophets of Baal, asking them, hey, what's going on? Why can't, why can't you do this? Your gods are asleep. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. Um, so that's what they did. You know, they, they cried out, didn't work, so they started cutting themselves. Um, biblically, I think it's far to say that, uh, so mockery here, um, mockery is not used very much in the Bible, but when it is, it's very powerful. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. So they're cutting themselves, they're doing self-mutilation, and that was their custom. Um, that could be one reason that they were limping and hobbling around, right? After a bail didn't, an idol didn't answer their prayer, they would cut themselves kind of as a sacrifice to their God, and still nothing would happen. So let's move on to verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering in the evening. So they started in the morning, and they tried all day to get their idols to set this, uh, this barbecue on fire. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention, no voice, no answer, no attention, only crushing, silent blood, and the 450 have had their turn. Nothing happened but self-destruction. And that's kind of what happens with us when we worship idols. Right? What happens when we worship idols over God? Right? Self-destruction begins to happen. We worship God, and he, when he's in control, our lives are better. We're doing the things we're supposed to do. Um, but for those 450, things are going to start to get a lot worse. So let's move on to verse 30 and 32. Um, then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Don't miss that. Okay, so under Ahab, all the altars towards Yahweh, the true God, were taken down. So Elijah repaired one, used 12 stones, 12 tribes of Israel, right? Um, This altar is made of 12 stones representing the people. Um, Because what's going to happen to the stones in just a moment is, is pretty stunning. So we can't can't let that small detail pass. Um, they represented Israel. The name given to Jacob after he wrestled with God and he prevailed. Uh, so God loves to be at disadvantages. right? God, it doesn't matter to God what the odds are. He can, over, he can overcome them all. So as we go on to verse 32 and 35. Um, and he made a trench after the, about the altar as great as would contain two seats of seed, which is about seven liters. Um, and he put the wood in order and cut the bulls in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trenches also with water. So... Here we have the prophet Elijah. He's preparing the altar. He's cut up the bulls. He's got it all ready to go. He even digs a trench around it. And then he tells some people, go give me some water. So he pours water on this. Okay? Not only is his God going to bring fire down, but he's going to bring fire on wet objects. Right? So they pour water on it three different times. So much water that it fills the trench around the altar. So this thing's soaked, right? It's flooded. And uh, he just knows that God's going to prevail. And so not only are the odds 450 to 1, but it's dry wood versus soaked wood, and the dry bull versus the wet bull, right? And the water is full in the trench. Um, And so we're going on to chapter 36. And at the time of the offering in the evening, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you were God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. This is the most explicit statement of purpose in all this story. Um, To me, verse 37 is the main point, but we'll get back to that in just a second. So in 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Everything, the bull, the wood, the water, the stones, even the stones, even the people, the stones represented the people. As Elijah called down, fire came, and everything was up in smoke, really. Okay? Miracle, right? Soaking wet wood, soaking wet bull, it all was gone. Um, consumed. And all that is left was God. So the fire here, just like in the Old Testament throughout, God is represented by the fire. Um, You look back at the burning bush, that was God. So here, 
God is is fire and he consumes it all. And then um So let's move on. Um, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Yes, He is. The Lord is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And if we look in Hebrews 13.8, the author of that says the same thing, right? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's us that change. It's us that choose other things over God. God is always the same. He's always loving. He's always caring. He's always there for us. It's us that turn our back on him. It's us that chooses to do other things. Um, he is the same, but not all of his ways are the same. Um, we got to look back into the Old Testament, and we're about to get into some violent parts here. And in the Old Testament, God didn't mess around, right? God's wrath was violent. Um, he disobeyed. You stepped out of line. Um, there was there was punishment. So the violence we are about to talk about was God's will when it happened. He has the right to execute and to appoint the executioner. The holy nature of of His justice, um, the deadly seriousness of idolatry, the final suffering that comes from sin. All these realities never change. But with the coming of Jesus, the people of God are no longer. Um, defined by a single political regime. So back here, Israel um, were the only people that believed in the one true God. Okay, They were one country, one culture, one people. Today, because of Jesus and the disciples, everybody has a chance to believe in Jesus, right? It doesn't matter if you're American or a Mexican or European or African um, we all are believers in Christ. But back then, during this time, they were all just Israelites, right? Other people in the world didn't believe in the same God. Um, so let's move on. So Paul says, what I have to do... Let's skip that part. We don't need to go through that. So let's move on to, to verse 40 and 42. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seize them all. So they have the two piles. They have the two, they have the challenge. Baal idols lose, right? Elijah and the one true God wins. So all the prophets of Baal are just standing around like, uh oh, right? We lost. Our gods are false. So Elijah immediately calls on them and says, okay, get them, seize them. And so Elijah brought them down to the brook and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to drink and eat. God had promised it in verse 1, I will send rain upon the earth. Now almost everything was in place. God had shown himself to be God. One more thing remained. God will make the rain an answer to persevering prayer. So God had his people, thousands of them, and he means to have more. So God here wins, like he always does, and um, the people change from idolatry back to the one true God. Um, And let's finish up here in 42 through 46. And so Elijah went up to the top of Mount 
Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he sat and he said to his servants, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again. He said this seven times. And after the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew dark and clouds and winds, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. He ran before the rain. He didn't limp. He didn't hobble around. He ran because of the Lord. Right? The Lord answered his promises. Um, so what is the point of this story? What is the meaning that this story has only... So to me, it had more than one lesson. Right? For to me, the point of the story, it all came down to verse 37 and 38. Um, but where does it come to a head? I think it comes to a head in verse 37. Because Elijah said to himself, this is what I want people to know. Right? This is what I want people to know. Through all of this, I want them to know one thing. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know. But what are they supposed to know? Um, two things. Two things they're supposed to know. First... That you, O Lord, are God. Right? That's what he wanted the people to know. Stop worshiping these dumb idols and go back to God. Okay? That's the first thing he wanted them to know. Um, And our God, he is not an idea. He's not a memory. He's not a tradition. And he's not a religion. Right? He's not a symbol. But he is God. The living, active, fire-sending, sin-hating idolatry-destroying, prayer-healing, personal God. That's what, that was the first thing he wanted his people to know. And the second is at the end of verse 37, he makes his people know that you have turned their hearts back, uh, which is a very big point because um, your people, causing your people to know this. The heart of Israel had gone after Baals, okay? Kind of like our hearts sometimes turn away from God and go towards other things. Um, and why do they do that? Because we're flesh and we're sinners. Um, and in order to prevent that, or in order to get them back, we need God. We need the Holy Spirit inside us. Um, their hearts had betrayed them, betrayed God, uh, belittled God, devalued God, loved other things more than God. This entire event on Mar- Mount Carmel is aimed to making God's people know this. If they turn back to God, it is God who turned them back. And that's the point of the story, right? To realize who God is, to remember who God is, and to change our hearts back to God. We all have bad days. We all have struggles. But we've got to remember who God is, right? If God can send down fire from heaven to, dur- to burn a flooded bull under wet wood what can he do in our lives right he can fix any situation that we have in our lives but we have to give it to him and we just can't treat him like a genie and ask one time right perseverance and praying um give it all to god um money can't save you you know the church can't save you but jesus can right give it to prayer and give it to god um, 
When the people cried from their hearts, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. God has done that. Yes, the Lord rules fire. He rules flesh, wood, rocks. He rules the rain. Um, and He rules us physically, right? Uh, the Lord rules the human heart, most importantly, right? Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Knowing this, Israel, for the good of your soul and the glory of God, when your heart turns back to the Lord, your heart is not sovereign, but God is. Um, You turned, you turned your heart um, your will turned, your affection turned. It was really you who turned it, right? God gives us the choice of free will. Are we going to choose door number one or door number two, right? Are we going to choose God or are we going to choose something else? So many times we choose something else. Um, why we do that, I don't know. Um, and God seems to be the last resort. But what uh, Elijah is trying to tell his people is make him the first resort. Um, So it was really you who turned. Uh, But open your eyes, Israel, as you stand before the ashes of these stones. Right? The stones represented them. They're actually their ashes. And before the corpse of these prophets, prophets and before the rushing of the rain, open your eyes and know God turned you back. God turned your heart back, turned your will back. And turned your affection back. God did that. Right? We can't fix our problems, but God can. Right? Why do we struggle? Uh, To make us stronger. Right? To help us to rely on God. And um, God keeps every heart. Um, And you would think that at this high point of Elijah's confidence, he would never lose sight of God's sovereign rule over the hearts of men. But as we look on... um, he too had a trouble with staying with God, staying on the right path. And um, so just know that when we do struggle, we do backslide, we do stupid stuff. God knows, God loves, and God wants us to turn our hearts back. So um, as we draw to an end, uh, just want to just bring up this last last point that, you know, in the New Testament, it says, Paul draws this lesson in Romans 11:5. He says, So too at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. In every generation among Jews and Gentiles there is a remnant chosen by grace. God turns hearts to himself by grace. And God keeps hearts for himself by grace. That is what it means for God to be God. Uh, Elijah cried out, Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That is, his people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back, causing them to know that you are God, and that you rule the hearts of men. You rule all our hearts, the hearts of their families, the hearts of our colleagues, the hearts of our political leaders. And as they look out across the nation, across the world, causing them to know that God rules the hearts of all people, all of them. And uh, God's will will hold fast. So don't be uh, despairing. Don't be sad. Don't uh, be depressed. But be the God 
thrilling, the joyful Christian Elijah was in 1 Kings 18, right? Don't say they have turned all the churches into um, name it and claim it places, you know? Don't say, oh, I'm the only one left, right? Especially with the young kids, you know? Um, You get in situations where you may be the only Christian left, right? But you have to stay resilient. You have to know that God is with you, you know? Um, You are not alone. And it's um, God will keep you safe, okay? God has his people. He has millions of them, and he means to have more because he is God. And he has brought them with the blood of his son, and he will have them. He will turn their hearts back and keep them forever. That's what it means to be God. So uh, let's close out in prayer. Uh, Thank you guys for not running out. Um, Appreciate that. So, dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you for your word. I pray that your word was heard. I pray um, people may be changed. I pray that um, when we leave these doors, Lord, we will take your word out of here. Lord, I pray that we will be joyful Christians, Lord. and, And I pray that our joy will come from you and you alone. Lord, I ask that... All those who are struggling, Lord, all those who are ill, all those who have family members that don't know you, I just pray that you be with us, Lord. Lead and guide us. Give us the words to speak to those individuals, Lord. Bring peace into their lives, Lord God, and help us to spread your word and to love others. In Jesus' name, amen.